a distinguished writer series. I always think that the distinguished writer series is really an extinguished writer series, you know, <laughs> or about to be extinguished. But obviously not with this one. Um, it's a fantastic thing that you've put together, and it's a real honour to be here. Thank you so much. Um, and I, I said a little joke to uh, the interpreter here today that I'm going to speak Osgwelga um, in Irish, and so she'd be, have to be able to interpret all of that as well at the same time. <laughs> but no, I won't do that. Are there any Irish speakers? <laughs> Actually, anybody from Ireland here? Oh, we have a couple. All right. Good stuff. Um, so I'm going to read to you today from, um, from Let the Great World Spin. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about how the novel sort of um, came about. Um, I've been working for... Well, for, first of all, let me say um, that, that... Thank you so much for that extraordinary introduction. Your jacket sort of overwhelmed the introduction for me. <laughs> Colin is a writer who uh, I admire tremendously and um, has put uh, Jamaican and Caribbean literature on the map in all sorts of ways for for readers all over the world. And um, there's enormous respect for what you do and what you continue to do um, in literary circles, um, uh, both here and in Jamaica with Calabash and everything like that. I think it's um, it, it, it's um, a fantastic thing that, you, that you've put together. So, and so it's my pleasure to be here with you as a friend and brother and uh, fellow writer and soccer player. <laughs> um, this novel came about... Um, well, really, it, it, I suppose it occurred to me shortly after 9-11. I was in New York um, on 9-11. My family was there. And my father-in-law, Roger Hawke, was in, on the 59th floor of the first building to be hit, the second building to come down. He got out, uh, and um, he, with just um, seconds to spare, and um, he walked through that sort of, what I could only describe, I suppose, as that sort of glaucoma storm of debris and dust. And um, when he came up to our apartment when we were living on, my wife and, and my two kids were living on 71st Street and 1st Avenue, um, he uh, my daughter ran up the corridor to jump into his arms because he was back. And uh, she said, Poppy, Poppy, Poppy. And then she ran away and she hid in a little cupboard there where she'd never hid before. Um, and I eventually found her and, and I said, listen, love, what's wrong? And she said, well, Poppy's burning. And I said, well, no, Poppy's not burning. It's just the, the smoke on his clothes from, there were some fires downtown. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand that. Uh, Poppy's burning from the inside out. And for me, it was one of those moments where I thought, wow, you know, how, do you, how will I tell her this? Or how will I eventually talk about this, um, you know, uh, down through the years? As a writer, you know, you think, you, you don't immediately want to plunder those subjects, but something comes along that's so enormous in, 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 in your life, and you think, eventually, you're going to have to confront it. And in the next few days, I did journalism, like a whole lot of people did, did journalism, wrote stories. But it seemed to me increasingly that, that, that everything around me had some sort of meaning. Now, uh, everybody experienced this. This is the thing. Like, people experienced it here. Uh, people experienced it in Belfast. People experienced it in Bangkok. People experienced it in Baghdad, both then and even now. And um, it struck me that there was a sort of a level ground of meaning um, that sort of was an equivalent with the level ground of meaning with, with what happened with the towers. Uh, all sorts of things were charged. Like, I walk out the, um, onto First Avenue, and there was a disused fire hydrant on 71st Street. 
And it seemed to me that that was intimately connected with everything else. You'd look at it and you'd think about all the pipes that were, ran through the city and eventually would go down, say, to those pipes that the young firemen um, who'd walked up the stairs they, that, that they'd use. So, so that disused fire hydrant that everybody forgot about, including myself, was suddenly charged with meaning. Or the fact that there was a, uh, <clears throat> a little dog barking in an apartment uh, you know, two or three floors up from you, and thinking that dog's been barking for a long, long time, so maybe the owner's not there, and then you think maybe the owner's not home, um, or like there's dust on your on on your windowsill, and you wipe that dust off with your finger, and you think where does that dust come from, and what is in that dust? I mean, could it be just be the ordinary stuff of the day, the dirty dust of New York that we all know, or was it something deeper, and was it you know did it come? from somebody's curriculum vitae? Did it come from somebody, from a, um, a pillar that was in, you know, on the 59th floor, whatever it happened to be? Or did it come from somebody's eyelash? So all of these things had poignancy and depth and meaning. And when there's a, a level ground of a meaning, when everything has meaning, then sometimes it suggests that not, not, it, there's the possibility that nothing can have meaning too. And so as a writer, I found it really hard to think about a way that I would want to eventually enter into talking about this. Until um, shortly after 9-11, I, I, I remembered reading Paul Auster's book, um, The Green Notebook, which I always call The Red Notebook because it has a red cover or vice versa. <laughs> Is it The Red Notebook? It's The Red Notebook, right, yeah, with a green cover. Um, anyway, there's a great essay in there about Philippe Petit who uh, walked the World Trade Center towers on, uh, in August 1974. And it struck me that uh, almost immediately that that, that, um, that would be a great way to enter into the narrative of creation because the Philippe Petit walk, this act of brazen beauty that he did across the World Trade Center towers, was an act of creation that to me sort of stood in perfect opposition to the act of destruction 27 years later. So that there was a sort of uh, or weird um, uh, Shiva balance that was going on there, you know, creation and destruction and so on. Um, and but then the novel morphed and changed for me um, as time went on. But really, that was the entry point for me to talk about um, what I was feeling about what was going on in my sort of adopted country. I'm from Ireland originally, um, from Dublin, and I, but I've been here best part of 15 years now. I'm a New Yorker. Um, my kids even say coffee. <laughs> it's funny. Like You wake up and you, you always think your kids are going to have the same accent as you or something. And then suddenly they're saying, forget about it. <laughs> Where did that thing come from? Actually, it doesn't matter to me. I was, it, I, I, before I had kids, I, I used to matter a whole lot more that, 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 that they might you know, uh, not sound the same um, uh, like they didn't come from Ireland, but now it just they're, they're, it, you just love them so much that it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Um, and I suppose uh, you know I have fallen in love with the city of New York as well, despite the fact that like you know the the Reader's Digest condensed censored version of my life is that I came from um, Ireland when I was twenty one. I took a bicycle across the United States. Actually, started in Boston of all places. Um, and uh, then lived in Texas, moved to Japan, and then moved back to um, New York uh, afterwards. Um, that is really the censored version of my life. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but I, 
at first I didn't love New York. It took me a while. And ne- but now I've, um, I feel very comfortable there. I love it enough to, um, to dislike it in many ways too, uh, which I think is a very important uh, acknowledgement of, um, say, the depth of complexity that you might have with any person or place. Um, and so uh, this novel grew out of the desire to write about 9-11, but it's all set in 1974. Most of it's set on this one day when Petit does the tightrope walk. Um, and I sort of hopefully leave it open to the reader um, to uh, acknowledge for herself or for himself um, what, uh, you know, say, the appearance of Vietnam means or what the appearance of the question of like uh, liberation theology uh, might mean in the book, or any, num- any number of things. Because I think it's as important to leave things sort of open at the end and not tell people how to feel, because I think the dignity of literature is allowing people to feel rather than telling them how to feel. Uh, certainly they're the, they're, they're the books that I like the best. Um, and the moments that I like the best when I walk out of a book and then start to interpret it. Um, so, that all said, I'm going to skip around for a few minutes uh, and read four or five different little sections and um, give you, to hopefully give you a flavour of the book. Then myself and Colin are going to chat. Uh, we're going to swap jackets too, and I'm going to take the one <laughs> off right now, because it's just no good. I can't wear this jacket anymore. <laughs> And uh, then I'm going to open it up um, to, to all of you. Um, and thank you so much for, for, for coming along. It's a real pleasure to be here. Okay, the opening salvo. <clears throat> Those who saw him hushed on Church Street, Liberty, Cortland, West Street, Fulton, Vesey. It was a silence that heard itself awful and beautiful. Some thought at first that it must have been a trick of the light, something to do with the weather, an accident of shadow fall. Others figured it might be the perfect city joke. Stand around and point upwards until people gathered, tilted their heads, nodded, affirmed, until all were staring upwards at nothing at all, like waiting for the end of a Lenny Bruce gag. But the longer they watched, the surer they were. He stood at the very edge of the building, shaped dark against the grey of the morning. A window washer, maybe, or a construction worker, or a jumper. Up there, at the height of 110 stories, utterly still, a dark toy against the cloudy sky. He could only be seen at certain angles so that the watchers had to pause at street corners, find a gap between buildings or meander from the shadows to get a view unobstructed by cornicework, gargoyles, balustrades, roof edges. None of them had yet made sense of the line strung at his feet from one tower to the other. Rather, it was a man-shape that held him there, their necks torn, their necks craned, torn between the promise of doom and the disappointment of the ordinary. Just further on the same chapter. Way above there was a movement. In his dark clothing his every twitch counted. He folded over a half thing bent as if examining his shoes like a pencil mark, most of which had been erased. The posture of a diver. And then they saw it. The watchers stood silent. Even those who had wanted the man to jump felt the air knocked out. They drew back and moaned. A body was sailing out into the middle of the air. He was gone. 
He'd done it. Some blessed themselves, closed their eyes, waited for the thump. The body twirled and caught and flipped, thrown around by the wind. A shout sounded then across the watchers. A woman's voice. God, oh God, it's a shirt. It's just a shirt. It was falling, 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 yes, a sweatshirt fluttering, and then their eyes left the clothing in midair, because high above the man had unfolded upwards from his crouch, and a new hush settled over the cops above and the watchers below, a rush of emotion rippling amongst them, because the man had arisen from the bend, holding a long thin bar in his hands, jiggling it, testing its weight, bobbing it up and down in the air, a long black bar, so pliable that the ends swayed, and his gaze was fixed on the far tower still wrapped in scaffolding like a wounded thing waiting to be reached. And now the cable at his feet made sense to everyone, and whatever else it was, there would be no chance now they could pull away. No morning coffee, no conference room cigarette, no nonchalant carpet shuffle. The waiting had been made magical, and they watched as he lifted one dark slippered foot like a man about to enter warm grey water. The watchers below pulled in their breath all at once. The air felt suddenly shared. The man above was a word they seemed to know, though they had not heard it before. Out he went. The novel then immediately goes to Ireland, um, and it picks up on an Irish monk um, who goes to the Bronx, actually based on a true character from the Petit Frère de Dieu, uh, or the Piccolo Frati, um, the Little Brothers of God, these guys actually exist in New York. They, um, they're monks. They're still around these days in, in the Bronx and Brooklyn, although a group of them that I got to know have now moved to Mexico, of all places. But they're basically, they're men. <coughs> they're women too, but not in this particular order, um, who uh, dress up uh, in the normal clothes, everyday clothes, and they live in an area where they feel that their influence might enter the air. They're just good souls who do good things and they take their vows of poverty, chastity um, and obedience. Um, and I loved these guys and I wanted to talk about faith um, and I wanted to talk about grace and recovery. Recovery was really interesting to me as, as a notion after the further I got away from 9-11 and that question of Isabella's, you know, burning from the inside out. Um, like how do we... How do we um, find grace and how do we find beauty and how do we find decency uh, in the small moments and this man um, I don't think it gives away too much to say that he dies in the novel um, this is just his brother's take on him and his relationship to God, just a couple of paragraphs Corrigan told me once that Christ was quite easy to understand, he went where he was supposed to go, he stayed where he was needed he took little or nothing along, Christ, a pair of sandals, a bit of a shirt, a few odds and ends to stave off the loneliness. He never rejected the world. If he had rejected it, he would have been rejecting mystery. And if he had rejected mystery, he would have been rejecting faith. What Corrigan wanted was a fully believable God, one you could find in the grime of the everyday the comfort he got from the hard, cold truth, the filth, the war, the poverty, was that life could be capable of small beauties. He wasn't interested in the glorious tales of the afterlife or the notions of a honey-soaked heaven. Now, that to him was a dressing room for hell, 
Rather, he consoled himself with the fact that in the real world, when he looked closely into the darkness, he might find the presence of a light, damaged and bruised, but a little light all the same. He wanted, quite simply, for the world to become a better place. And he was in the habit of hoping for it. Out of that came some sort of triumph that went beyond theological proof, a cause for optimism against all the evidence. Someday, he said, the meek might actually want it. Now, he lives in a fairly bruised and damaged world, um, and a lot of characters in this novel, I suppose, live in a fairly bruised and damaged world, one of them being um, uh, Claire, who lives on Park Avenue. I have to tell you that I am the, 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 the least cool writer in New York. <laughs> because I live close to Park Avenue myself. <laughs> Anybody who has any is, is cool at all, right? It's true. They live in Brooklyn. They really do. So I live in Manhattan. Oh, it's they terrible. live in like Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, they live in like Brooklyn-like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only other writer I know who lives um, in Manhattan, well there's, a, well, there's a few of them actually, but, but Nathan Englander also uh, lives in, in, in Manhattan. Um, anyway, this is a woman who lives on 75th Street and Park Avenue. Um, and basically the chapter just introduces her, and um, it's called Miro, Miro on the wall, because she owns a one Miro. Um, and uh, she is a mathematician, and uh, she's in love with a Jewish man. She's married to him for many, many years, and they've sent their son off to war. They've lost their son, Joshua, uh, in the war. And um, I'm going to read a couple of pages where she's waiting for other women to come along. Other women who have joined sort of what I could only describe as sort of a grief group. Uh, other mothers who have lost their sons. But they're all from working class areas, from the Bronx, from Brooklyn, from Staten Island, from the Lower East Side. Um, and she's quite nervous that they're coming to her, uh, her well-off house. She's a character I like, um, and I, I tried really hard for her, you know, to you know to write about Vietnam, but also to be on Park Avenue at the same time. So it was, it, it was a, a tough thing to do, but I, I enjoyed meeting her, if you will. It's the first time, really, and I've been writing for twenty years. I have seven books that I've written from the point of view of a very privileged person. And that's ironic because I kind of feel privileged myself in many ways. I grew up fairly middle class, safe in, in Ireland. I used to joke with um, Frank McCourt that he got all the misery in, 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 and <laughs> didn't leave any for me. <laughs> and the worst thing possible, a happy childhood. It's terrible. terrible. <laughs> You have to invent all the misery afterwards. You know? In fact, I love Frank McCourt, and, and, and I've been carrying this book with me for, for a long, long time, and I carry him with me in his memorial. He, um, he died just shortly um, before this book was published. He was very good to me about it, too. Anyway, this is Claire, and she's thinking about her son. She wanted to tell him so much on the tarmac the day he left. The world is run by brutal men and the surest proof is their armies. If they ask you to stand still, you should dance. If they ask you to burn the flag, wave it. If they ask you to murder, recreate. Theorem, anti-theorem, corollary, 
anti-corollary, underline it twice, it's all there in the numbers. Listen to your mother. Listen to me, Joshua. Look me in the eyes, I have something to tell you. But he stood, buzz-haired and red-cheeked in front of her, and she said nothing. Say something to him, that shine to his cheeks. Say something. Tell him. Tell him. But she just smiled. Solomon pressed a star of David into his hands and turned away and said, Be brave. She kissed his forehead goodbye. She noticed the way the back of his uniform creased and uncreased in perfect symmetry, and she knew, she just knew, the moment she saw him go, that she was seeing him go forever. Hello, Central, give me heaven. I think my Joshua was there. Oh, I can't indulge this heart sickness. No, spoon the coffee out and line the tea bags up. Imagine endurance. There's a logic to that. Imagine and hang on. How is it being dead, son, and would I like it? Oh, the buzzer. Oh, oh, spoon clang to the floor, stepping quickly along the corridor. Return, pick up the spoon. Everything neat now, neat now, yes. Give me back his living body, Mr. Nixon, and we will not quarrel. Take this corpse, all 52 years of it, swap it. I won't regret it. I won't complain. Just give me back my son, all sewn up and handsome. Control yourself, Claire. I shall not fall apart. No. Quick now, doorwise, at the buzzer, her mind, she knows, needs a quick dip in water. A momentary cold swell, like those little buckets outside a Catholic church. Dip in and be healed. Yes? Your visitors, Mrs. Soderberg. Oh, yes, send them up. Too harsh? Too quick? I should have said, wonderful, great, with a big swell in my voice instead of send them up. Not even please. Like hired hands, plumbers, decorators, soldiers. She engages the button to listen in again. Curious thing, these old intercoms. Faint static and buzz and some laughter and door close. The elevator straight ahead, ladies. Well, at least there's that. At least he didn't show them to the service elevator. At least they're in the warm mahogany box. No, not that, the elevator. The faint mumble of voices, all of them together. They must have met up beforehand, prearranged. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't let it cross my mind. I wish they hadn't. They talked about me, maybe. She needs a doctor. Awful grey streak in her hair. Her husband's a judge. She wears implausible sneakers. She struggles to smile. She lives in a penthouse, but she calls it upstairs. Is terribly nervous. Thinks she's one of the gals, but she's really just a snob. Is likely to break down. How to greet them? Handshake? Air kiss? Smile? The first time round when they'd met, they'd all hugged goodbye together in Staten Island at the doorstep with the taxi beeping, her eyes streaked with tears, arms around one another, all of us happy at Marsha's house when Janet pointed to a yellow balloon caught in the treetops. Oh, let's meet again soon. And Gloria had squeezed her arm. They had touched cheeks. Our boys? You think they knew each other, Claire? You think they were friends? War, the disgusting proximity of it, its body odour, its breath on her neck all this time, two years now since pull-out, three, two and a half, five million, does it matter? Nothing's over, the cream becomes the milk, the first star at morning is the last one at night. Did she think they were friends? Well, they could have been, Gloria, they certainly could have been. 
Vietnam was as good a place as any to start. Yes, indeed, Dr. King, he had a dream, and it would not be gassed on the shores of Saigon. When the good doctor was shot, she sent a thousand dollars and twenty dollar bills to his church in Atlanta. Her father raved and roared. He called it guilt money, but she didn't care. It was plenty to be guilty for. She was modern, yes. She should have sent her her whole inheritance. I like fathers. I just think everyone should disown one. Like it or not, Daddy, it goes to Dr. King. And what do you think of your niggers and your kikes now? <gasps> the mezuzah on the door. Oh, I forgot about that. She touches it, stands in front of it, just tall enough to obscure it, the top of her head, the clang of the elevator. Why the shame? But it's not shame, not really, is it? What is there possibly to be ashamed of? Solomon insisted on the mezuzah years ago. That's all, for his own mother. To make her comfortable when she visited, to make her happy. And what's wrong with that? It did make her happy, isn't that enough? I have nothing to apologize for. I have scuttled around all morning with my lips puckered, afraid to breathe, swallowed a big bag of air. I should have been a pair of ragged claws. What is it the young ones say? Get a grip, hang on, ropes and helmets and carabiners. What is it that I never said to Joshua? She can see the numbers as they rise, a bustle from the elevator shaft and a loud chatter. They are comfortable already. I wish I'd met them earlier in some coffee shop, but here they are, here they come. What was it? Hello, she says. Hello, hello, hello. Marcia, Jacqueline, look at you. Come in. Oh, I love your shoes, Janet. This way, this way. Gloria. Oh, hi. Hi. Oh, look, please, come in. It's so lovely to see you. The only thing you need to know about war, son, is don't go. Okie dokie. Now for something entirely different. Um... I don't know how you, you sign through all that. That's fantastic. Well done. <laughs> um, I go from a um, 52-year-old uh, uh, lady on Park Avenue to 38-year-old grandmother who's a hooker in the Bronx. Um, this is a chapter called This is the House the Horse Built. Horse being um, heroin from the 1970s, as you all know. <laughs> I thought that would get a laugh. <laughs> Um, this was an interesting character for me to try to reach because she, she was the hardest one for me. Um, I tell the story sometimes about like how I have a little office at home and my kids aren't allowed to come into my office or anything like that. Um, and one day I'm, I'm typing away working on this chapter. It took me about six months to find the voice and I suddenly had found the voice and I was like four or five days into it. And um, typing away, boom, boom, boom. And then I look over and... In underneath the door slips a white sheet of paper, you know. That's from my daughter, my, who was 12 at the time, saying, Daddy, can we go play soccer in Central Park? And I'm, I'm like, of course we can't go play so soccer in Central Park. I'm a 38-year-old hooker in the Bronx. You know? <laughs> sort of how these characters take, some, 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 sometimes take, take, take over. <laughs> Certainly this woman took, took over um, my head. And um, am, I allowed to do any am I allowed to do rude stuff? Rude is okay, even on camera. No. All right. I, I won't do too many, too much rude stuff, but I'll do a little bit of rude stuff. Um, they didn't let me go to Corrigan's funeral. I would have walked the bakery line to get there. They put me in the pen instead. I weren't crying. I lay straight out on the bench with my hand over my eyes. I saw my rap sheet. It's yellow with 54 entries, typed up not so neat. 
You see your life with carbon copies, kept in a file. Hunts Point, Lexington 49th, West Side Highway, all the way back to Cleveland. Loitering, prostitution offence, Class A misdemeanour, criminal possession, controlled substance, 7th degree, criminal trespass, 2nd degree, criminal possession, narcotic drug, Class E felony, prostitution solicitation, Class A misdemeanour, degree 0. The cops, they must have got a D in spelling. Tilly Henderson, alias Miss Bliss, alias Puzzle, alias Rosa P, alias Sweetcakes. Race, sex, height, weight, hair colour, hair type, complexion, eye colour, scars, marks, tattoos, none. But I got a taste for supermarket cakes. You won't find that on my yellow sheet. The day they arrested Bob Marley was on the radio singing, Get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. And some funny-ass cop turned the volume higher and grinned over his shoulder. And Jaslyn shouted, Who's going to look after the babies? I left the spoon in the baby formula. 38 years old, there ain't no prizes. Hooken was born in me, that's no exaggeration. I never wanted no square job. I lived right across from the stroll on Prospect Avenue in East 31st. From my bedroom window I could see the girls work. I was eight. They wore red high heels and hair combed high. The daddies went by on their way to the Turkish hotel. They got dates for their girls. They wore hats big enough to dance in. Every pimp movie you ever seen has them pulling up in a Cadillac. It's true. Daddies drive kiddies. They like white wall tires. The fuzzy dice, it don't happen so often though. I put on my first lipstick when I was nine. Shiny in the mirror, my mother's blue boots were too big for me at eleven. I could have hid down inside them and popped my fool head out. When I was thirteen, I already had my hands on the hip of a man in a raspberry suit. He had a waist like a lady's, but he hit me hard. His name was Fine. He loved me so much, he didn't put me on the stroll. He said he was grooming me. My mother had religious readings. We were in the Church of the Spiritual Israel. You had to throw your head back and speak in tongues. She'd been on the stroll too. That was years ago. She left it when her teeth fell out. She said, don't you do what I done, Tilly. So I done exactly that. My teeth haven't fallen out yet, but... I left baby Jaslyn with my mother. She kicked her legs and looked up at me. She had the whitest skin when she was born. I thought at first she wasn't mine. I never knew who her daddy was. He could have been any on a list long as Sunday. People said he might have been a Mexican, but I don't recall no Pablo sweating on me. I took her up in my arms, and that's when I said to myself, I'm going to treat her good all her life. The first thing you do when you have a baby is you say, she's never going to work the stroll. You swear it. Not my baby. She's never going to be out there. So you work the stroll to keep her off the stroll. And I stayed that way near three years on the stroll, running home, taking her in my arms, and then I knew what I had to do. I said, look after her, Mama, I'll be right back. The skinniest dog I ever seen is the one on the side of the Greyhound buses. I was the first nigger, absolute regular on that stroll. They called me Rosa Parks. They used to say I was a chewing gum spot, black and on the pavement. That's how it is in the life word. You joke a lot. When I was 17, I had a body that Adam would have dropped Eve for. <laughs> Hot potato time. It was prime, no lie. Nothing in the wrong place. I had legs a hundred miles long and a booty to die for. Adam would have said to Eve, Eve, I'm leaving you, honey. <laughs> and Jesus himself would have been in the background saying, Adam, you're one lucky mother. <laughs> <laughs> On Lexington, they got hope. Did you sign that? Yeah. <laughs> 
On Lexington, they got hotels with wallpaper and room service and real gold paint on the rims of plates. They got rooms where they put chocolates on the pillows. They got businessmen come in for a day, whiteies in their tighties. They lift up their shirts. You can smell the husband panic coming off of them. Like their, their wife is going to climb out of the TV set. The chambermaids put mints on pillows. I had a handbag full of green wrappers. I left the room with men already sweating out their marriage licenses. I was calling myself Miss Bliss back then because I was very happy. The men were just bodies moving on me, bits of colour. They didn't matter none. Sometimes I felt just like a needle in a jukebox. I fell on that groove and I rode in a while. Then I'd pick the dust off and I'd drop again. This is the only vaguely autobiographical part of this section. You'll know why after the first line. I got a trick I thought I recognised. He was young but bald on top. <laughs> The bald spot was very white, like a little ice rink on the top of his head. He got a room in the Waldorf Astoria. The first thing he did was he pulled the curtains tight and he fell on the bed and he said, let's get it on. I was like, wow, do I know you, honey? He looked at me hard and said, no. Are you sure? I said, oh, cutesy and shit, you look familiar. He said, no, he said, real angry. Hey, take a chill pill, honey, I said, I'm only axing. So I pulled off his belt and unzipped him and he moaned, oh yeah, 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 like they all do. And he closed his eyes and he kept on moaning. And then, I don't know why, but I figured it out. It was the guy from the weather report on CBS. <laughs> Except he wasn't wearing his toupee. <laughs> that was his disguise. So I finished him off and got myself dressed and I waved goodbye. But I turned at the door and said to him, hey man, it's cloudy in the east with the wind at ten knots and a chance of snow. <laughs> There I was, cracking myself up. <laughs> Once I had a man a whole week long at the Sherry Netherlands. There was a chandelier surrounded with grapes and vines in the ceiling and violins carved out of the plaster and all. He was small and fat and bald and brown. He put a record on the player, sounded like snake music. He said, isn't this a divine comedy? I said, that's a weird thing to say, man. He just smiled, he had a nice accent. We had crystal cocaine and caviar and champagne in a bucket. It was a blow date, but all he had me do was read to him Persian poems. I thought, maybe I was already in heaven and floating on a cloud. There was a lot of things being said about ancient Syria and Persia and all. I laid out, in the I laid out on the bed, buck naked, and just read to the chandelier. He didn't even want to touch me. He sat in a chair and watched me reading. I left with $800 and a copy of Rumi. I never read nothing like that before. Made me want to have a fig tree. That's long before I went to Hunts Point, and that's long before I ended up under the Deegan, and that's long before Jaslyn and Corrigan, they rode that van to doom. But if I was given one week to live, just one week again, if that was my choice, that week at the Sherry Netherlands is the one I'd repeat. I was just lying on the bed, naked, reading, and him being nice to me and telling me I was fine, that I'd do well in Syria and Persia. i never seen Syria or Persia or Iran or whatever it is they call it, but someday I'm going to go, and I'll bring Jaslyn's babies, and I'll marry an oil sheik. Except I've been thinking about the noose. Any excuse is a good excuse. I'm a fuck-up. That's what I am. I took the rap, and Jaslyn, she paid the price. I am the mother and my daughter is no more. I can only hope that at the last minute, at least she was smiling. Okay, dokie. And then, last piece to read to you. There's a photograph in this book 
It was actually taken on August the 7th, 1974. Uh, and it's on page 237, I think, in your books, if you have a book there in front of you. Um, if you don't, uh, I'm going to try and show it to you from a distance. Actually, this one's a different one because I had to buy the world rights to the photograph. It was like, um, anyway, uh, there's the. I, I ascribe it to one of my characters in the book, a kid who, who takes photographs, but it was actually taken by a guy called Vic de Lucia. There are the World Trade Center towers. There, you can't see, I'm sure, is um, Philippe Petit right in the middle, like a little fly thing in the middle of the. Uh, 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 a little. Um, and then in the background is, is a plane that looks like it's about to go into the towers. And when I found this photograph, I knew that I had my novel. Um, and this is just a tiny little piece, one minute long, where another character owns the photograph. The chapter's called Roaring Seaward and I Go. Um, and this is the one part of the novel that takes place um, post-9-11, uh, October 2006. And so she, she owns the photograph now. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't want to give too much away. So. Roaring seaward and I go. She often wonders what it is that holds the man so high in the air. What sort of ontological glue? Up there in his haunted silhouette, a dark thing against the sky, a small stick figure in the vast expanse. The plane on the horizon the tiny thread of rope between the edges of the buildings, the bar in his hands, the great spread of space. The photo was taken on the exact same day her mother died. It was one of the reasons she was attracted to it in the first place, the sheer fact that such beauty had occurred at the same time. She had found the photo yellowing and torn in a garage sale in San Francisco four years ago at the bottom of a box of photographs. The world delivers its surprises. She bought it, got it framed, kept it with her as she went from hotel to hotel. A man high in the air while a plane disappears, it seems, into the edge of the building. One small scrap of history meeting a larger one. As if the walking man were somehow anticipating what would come later. The intrusion of time and history. The collision point of stories. We wait for the explosion, but it never occurs. The plane passes, the tightrope walker gets to the end of the wire, things don't fall apart. And it strikes her now as an enduring moment, the man alone against scale, still capable of myth in the face of all other evidence. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a good reading. Lovely reading. Thank you. Did, did you, um, in going to school in Ireland as a kid, did you have to do public recitations? Yeah. Um, in fact, like every Christmas what I do, like uh, with my kids, instead of getting like um, socks and ties and all that, I ask them to, to, to learn a poem for me. So like Isabella, like recently she learned um, Heaney's Digging, and Johnny Michael learned, um, he actually learned the speech that Lou Gehrig gave, because um, at the last speech that Lou mm -hmm. Gehrig gave at Yankee Stadium before he died. And Christian, who's only six, he learned um, Robert, a little bit of Robert Frost, the 
road less traveled. Right. And um, we used to recite all the time when we, when we were kids. But you obviously recited too, right? Yeah, well, anyway, there's one of the, um, the things that in, when you have an English education, there's uh, an awareness of that language as something performed, right. as something important. And I can hear the influence of this valuation of the spoken voice right. in Let the Great World Spin. It is the voice of the multitude. Right. right. So are you some kind of um, closet ventriloquist? Uh-huh. Um, yes, actually. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't know how it happens or why it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, the thing that, that interests me is that, I mean, I'm, I'm not being disingenuous here. Mm-hmm. I really don't want to read about myself, mm-hmm. nor do I want to write about myself. Um, I, I think that we should write towards what we want to know. And I don't really want to hear anything... I don't want to read a book about the middle class upbringing in Ireland or like sitting in, 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 in an apartment off of um, Park Avenue um, in New York. Um, I want to write about all these other voices that are out there that are um, intriguing for me. And see, the thing is that I can sort of become them for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I can deal with my, my normal life mm-hmm. and then travel in these other skins. It's like the great Dylan Thomas book, Adventures in the Skin Trade. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a porno thing, but it's not. Yeah. It, it, it's what I think what he's talking about is like the ability to go and be part of another body or culture or geography. Right. And that, I love that about about novels, about poetry. Right. That, and that's the great thing about reading too. But like I love a great book. We become someone else. Right. But in Zoli and Dante, you went overseas. Right. Here, you're writing um, in your adopted country, adopted city. Right. Um, what was that like, writing? an American novel? It's a little bit scary. Um, but, you know, this one happened to me very, 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 very quickly and without a huge degree of consciousness beforehand, like not really knowing what I was doing. I knew I wanted to use the image of the tightrope walker. But I didn't know that those two little girls would appear at the end. I didn't know that Tilly would come in as a voice. Mm-hmm. I sort of... Really what happened was I went back to Ireland. The funny thing is I, I, I've been wanting for a long time to write about Ireland and I went back, I had the image of the tightrope walker and then I had the image of Corrigan, the Irish monk. Mm-hmm. And he then, like, he refused to dwell very long in Ireland. Right. He kept leaving Sandy Mount on me, you know. Right. And then he was in New York and he was with all these hookers. Right. And he, like I, I know this sounds semi-mystical or whatever, but as a character, he kept introducing me to the hookers, saying, but, but, these people are more interesting. But, but I don't think you should apologize for writing being something mystical. I mean, those of us who teach it have to pretend it's not mystical mm. because, mm-hmm. you know, we have to sort of make students believe that they can actually just learn it, mm. right? But we know deep down in our heart of hearts, and I'm glad none of my students are here to hear this, um, <laughs> is that there is something mystical about it and that we have to, as teachers who are writers, we have to make conscious to ourselves what has become unconscious and as a way of trying to sort of impart what it is that we do. Yeah, that and the most beautiful thing about literature or maybe the most beautiful thing about any teaching Mm -hmm. is it has a spin-off into every other area of your life. I mean, you can make a short story become about anything. You, you know, 
people like react to criticism sometimes. Like mm -hmm. uh, um, I've seen writers get upset because you know somebody's taken one of their short stories and, as far as they're concerned, misinterpreted it. Mm -hmm. If somebody gets a meaning out of say one of my stories or one of my sentences that's a million miles removed from what I intended. I think all the better. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty of education, mm -hmm. that we bring literature into the classroom and critics take it and expand it. Right. So my little limited world mm -hmm. becomes a, big, a bigger world because it becomes well-read. Right. So nothing is finished mm -hmm. until the reader gets her hands or his hands on it and then they bring it to a new place. Mm -hmm. I've become infinitely uh, cleverer once people have read a book. <laughs> But this is kind of the thing about writing that's very interesting, and I think you'll agree. I mean, you talk to the greats and the ones that you, that, that, that you love, like Don DeLillo, Michael Ondaatje, they right. all say this sort of thing, Russell right. Banks. Right. And they say, you know, I'm not so sure that I absolutely knew what I was doing there, right. but it happened to me. Right. So there was, a, there was something emotional going on that right. clues itself in later. Mm -hmm. to, to, to the intelligence that other people bring to it. Right. But as, how does that connect with the idea of the origins of the writer and the storyteller in the shaman? Mm. That the person who knew the, the methods and the medicines of the plant was also the person who kept the, story, the stories of the tribe and the history. And that there is a kind of mystical experience, a kind of thing that we, we reach for and touch almost like lightning, and it comes through the body and sort of comes down the page. But there's something in that there is that, that the idea of faith and the belief in the irrational is almost essential. Well, I think to, that's to so be beautifully right put, and it's really interesting, because I think it, 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 it is the original medicine, mm -hmm. um, like, like storytelling as the original medicine, as the sort of core democratic experience. I know mm -hmm. democracy is supposedly only like, uh, you know, what, 200 years old or, you know, um, as, as we know it. But I think the fact that it, somebody would come in and tell a story, like in my culture, the, 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 the shamans or the shanakis mm -hmm. would go around from place to place and tell a story for four nights, five nights on end. Right. But everybody wanted to hear that story, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's a purely sort of, de that's a democratic instinct. Absolutely. And it's also a medicine. Because mm -hmm. we need to resolve ourselves. I mean, nowadays we have psychologists and psychiatrists and everything. But like they're too that. expensive. Yeah, but they're very expensive. Yeah. I mean, this is this book is. And book is fifteen dollars. Fifteen dollars. But but there is a way in which right, um, the collective voice in the story, the way in which the story gives voice to the multitudes, is connected to um, the way in which um, art can bring, uh, if not relief, at least understanding. At least give people a sense that they've been heard. Right. You know, um, one of the passages that touched me, and it touched me because it brought on me an awareness that you found as a writer, as a way of being um, religious in a way that's not offensive. And it made me think about the way in which um, in America, the post colony, that. We, we, we feel, those of us who are progressive, feel almost as if we have to publicly reject the religion, religion, especially if it's a religion of our parents. But here on page 112, um, we hear uh, the influence of the translators of the King James Version of the Bible. 
And then she knows now what it is about the walking man. It strikes her deep and hard and shivery. It has nothing to do with angels or devils, nothing to do with art or the reformed, or the intersection of a man with a vector, man beyond nature, none of that. He was up there out of a sort of loneliness, what his mind was, what his body was, a sort of loneliness, with no thought at all for death. Death by drowning, death by snake bite, death by mortar, death by bullet wound, death by wooden stake, death by tunnel rat, death by bazooka, death by poison arrow, death by pipe bomb, death by piranha, death by food poisoning, death by Kalishnikov, death by RPG, death by best friend, death by syphilis, death by sorrow, death by hypothermia, death by quicksand, death by tracer, death by thrombosis, death by water torture, death by tripwire, death by pool cue, death by Russian roulette, and it just keeps going on and on and on. And in it... I could listen to you read that. <laughs> what a great voice. Yeah. Then, and every year at the um, congregation for 9-11, when they call the names right. of the dead. Right. Mm. That, 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 that repetition, that mm -hmm. sort of incantory sadness, mm -hmm. um, that, that's there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, again, this is something that just is sort of discovered um, mm -hmm. along the way. I've often thought about reading that passage, but I've never read that, 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 that passage aloud. Because mm. I think it's just it's, it's a really tough passage to get, you, to get your head around. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but, um, see, that's why I'd like to be in your class, Colin. That's the thing. <laughs> Is there any room to, to, to discuss uh, Let the Great World Spin as a blues novel? Or the jazz novel? And here's what, what I'm asking. There's a way in which um, the blues deals with tragedy, mm. but is always optimistic. The blues gives voice to many of those people and those feelings who don't always get a voice. There is um, a feeling here in this work that it is deeply American work, that it's connected to, I think, a tradition that binds all of us here in popular culture. How do you feel about a reading of this as a blues novel? Well, that's, I'm going to rob that and say, next time Ryan, I do an interview, I say, you know this is a blues novel. <laughs> um, you, know, you know what I think is the great blues novel of our time is Finnegan's Wake. Absolutely. You know, you read Finnegan's Wake and it just leaps off the page mm -hmm. as, you know, and it's got those, those, those Thelonious Monk squawks and right. things like that that just like non-language, un-language, yes. uber-language sort yes. of stuff. Um, uh, but I think that, you know, another great uh, jazz novel, mm -hmm. as opposed to a blues novel, is Coming Through Slaughter absolutely. by Michael Undachi. Michael Undachi, absolutely. Um, and uh, when I was writing this, I listened to a lot of um, Van Morrison mm -hmm. and a lot of Astral Weeks mm -hmm. in particular. Mm -hmm. So I put Astral Weeks over and over and over again in my, in my stereo. And mm -hmm. I, think, I think Van Morrison sort of... Um, who has that Irish bluesy, Absolutely. you know, southern thing going mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. So maybe he penetrated the, the, the book in certain ways. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you feel burdened by the name Irish writer? It's a big, it's a big name to carry. It's a it's big a, tradition. It's a good question. You know what? I left, <clears throat> and, um, you know, I wanted to 
at a certain stage, I thought I wanted to expand what were the borders or the boundaries of an Irish novel and right. say, well, it can be about a gypsy woman, well, it can be about a gay Muslim ballet dancer, right. you know, um, well, it can be about, you know, the Twin Towers or whatever. Mm. Um, but I've never felt overly burdened mm -hmm. um, because I never felt, I, I feel reverence for, 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 for those great writers. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing about it is you get your voice from so many other voices mm -hmm. that I feel sort of grateful to have mm -hmm. had, say, not only Joyce Beckett, Shaw Yates, but, but Ben Kiley, mm -hmm. you know, Roddy Doyle, Neil Jordan, mm -hmm. uh, Sebastian Barry, mm -hmm. Joe O'Connor, like all these voices, Anne Enright, Edna O'Brien. Oh, right. I love Edna. Mm -hmm. like, um, so I think if I pay proper acknowledgement to them mm -hmm. that I won't feel over, overburdened mm -hmm. um, by them. Yeah. You, you're now a US citizen. Yeah. But now you're American. That's a brilliant question. That's a brilliant question. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, I am. And, and, and I, I've recently come to terms with it. And, and if you'd asked me that three years ago, I would not have been able to say yes. Mm -hmm. um, because there's a huge amount of guilt in losing your, your um, citizenship. Um, even though I'm a dual citizen, citizen, I'm Irish and American at the same time. Uh, not Irish-American, not hyphenated. No, no, no. No. I don't like the idea of being hyphenated. No. Um, but, uh, you know, you and I were talking earlier. I think this is a very important to say. Mm. Uh, you know, I came to this country 20-odd uh, years ago, took a bicycle, 25 years ago, took a bicycle across the United States. I found it to be one of the most extraordinarily generous places. Right. Honestly, this is no, this is not playing to the crowd or anything like that. I went down through, through, you know, uh, Mississippi, through Louisiana, mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. Texas, you know, and, and, and everywhere I met this astounding generosity and, and the desire to tell stories and the desire also to listen to mm -hmm. stories. Mm -hmm. But now I find, and I look at American literature and it's populated with all these voices like yourself, right? Like Alexander Heyman. Uh, like Chimamanda uh, Ngozi Adichie. Mm -hmm. So you say you're coming from Jamaica. Uh, Sasha is coming from Sarajevo. Chimamanda is coming from Nigeria. Uh, I'm coming from Ireland. Uh, uh, Yiyun Lee is coming from China. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Edvige Danticat is mm -hmm. coming from Haiti. And you know what the most amazing thing is? That they can be considered American writers at the same time. And this is the extraordinary generosity mm -hmm. of American literature. Right. And the thing is... The key to it all is that they allow you to remain from, they allow you to align yourself still with your home country. Mm -hmm. They don't strip you of anything. Right. So you can be Irish and American at the same time. If I was forced, if I had been asked that question, mm -hmm. are you American now, without being able to answer yes, but I'm Irish too, then I would not be able to answer the question. Right. And this seems to me to be the like extraordinary intellectual, emotional generosity of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Despite all the shit that's occurred over the last you know, 10 right. years in right. politics in this country, mm -hmm. and we won't get into that too mm -hmm. much, mm -hmm. uh, I do think there's still something at the core of the experience of coming here and being an immigrant here mm -hmm. that's unlike anywhere on earth. And I don't think it can happen in France, mm -hmm. that you can go along. And uh, France is very generous in, in right. terms of being you know, a country f for literature. Certainly won't happen in England. You can't right. become an English writer. There's no way. No, no, no. I, I mean, think about it. 
is not an Eng is, is still not even though he's lived there for years and years he's right. still not he's still a Nigerian writer right. and only a Nigerian writer right. um, and I think this is really important to talk mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. um, and, and, and this act of assimilation this act of generosity makes American literature as far as I'm concerned one mm -hmm. of the most muscular elastic and, mm -hmm. and, and brilliant anywhere right. and I still think it's at the forefront right. I agree with you but there's a certain privilege though in being an immigrant writer, and I think yeah. part of the privilege is that you're allowed to be serious. Where I think it's that, smart. Yeah. yeah, where I think that uh, uh, the tyranny of irony right. has overtaken so many uh, American writers of our age group, where one feels silly being right. serious, and so there's the posture of cynicism. Right. But I think that when you come to a country that allows you to do the thing that you want to do more than anything right. in the world except kiss your children. Right. And there's a way in which you treasure that, that you, but also to, I think, the, there are notions and ideas from our home countries where a writer is expected to be grown up, right. where a writer is not expected to be in a kind of retarded adolescence or to right. pretend as if he or she is, right. that... Um, allows us to not feel ashamed of trying to wrestle with the big idea, of not trying to sort of joke it out. Right. Yeah. Which is, it's tough, right? It is tough. You know, uh, you know the, the, there are, uh, obviously there are plenty of exceptions that prove the rule. I of mean, course. Um, you know, in terms of American writers who are doing profound things now, I think the Steinbeck of where we are is Dave Eggers. Absolutely. Know? He reads iTunes yeah. and sure. just like... He kicks me in the chest every time. I just think he is so involved and he cares yeah, so much. Absolutely. And then William Volman and people mm -hmm, like that, sure. Nicole Kraus, like all these people who are doing, I mean, there, there, there are lists, but there is that sort of like um, middle-aged sort of ironic sort of yeah. like, you know, you know I'll, the, the, the sort of dark humor sort of thing. Right, sure. That just gets, gets up my nostrils. Right. <laughs> And I just think, come on, guys, you got, you, there's so much to talk about. Sure. It's, it's very important to take on some of these ideas. You know, you look at the, the, the older generation. Sure. Like DeLillo and Doctorow and... and Banks. And, like Banks, right, sure. exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they're doing such, such great things. 